Welcome to Cognizations, a podcast where we interview cognitive scientists about their work and how it applies to our everyday lives. Cognitive science is the interdisciplinary study of the mind, which brings together cognitive psychology, the neurosciences, linguistics, philosophy, modeling, and more. Without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. With today's hosts, I'm Jay. And I'm Danat. What is normal? What is a disorder? Often, when we interact with people who behave in ways we cannot understand, the question of defining quote-unquote normal and sane behavior becomes apparent. Importantly, when we ourselves exhibit thoughts and behaviors which are viewed as deviant from the commonly accepted definition of normality, we might feel helpless, judged, and inadequate. Historically, behaviors that are diagnostic of mental disorders were viewed as irrational or disruptive. However, recent breakthroughs in cognitive science can shed new light on redefining psychiatric phenomena while erasing the stigma of irrationality. What are these breakthroughs? What goes into elucidating the nature and causes of the many psychological troubles with which one can be faced? Are delusions and other kinds of thoughts really irrational? Today's guest is the person to answer all these questions, or at least some of them. He is Sam Wilkinson, a senior lecturer in philosophy at the Department of Sociology, Philosophy and Anthropology at the University of Exeter in the United Kingdom. He received his PhD at Edinburgh University and did a postdoc at Durham University on the phenomenon of hearing voices. Currently, he is visiting the Institut Jean-Nicot. His work lies at the intersection of the philosophy of cognitive science and the philosophy of psychiatry. He has published papers on the topics of predictive processing approaches to studying cognition, psychosis, hallucinations, trauma, and much more. Thanks for being on the episode with us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So just to get us started, for our listeners, could you describe your academic journey till now and how you got interested into cognitive science? Great. Well, so as a teenager, I was initially really into literature, uh, as so many teenagers are. Um, And it occurred to me that the literature that I particularly enjoyed was literature that had... um, a little bit of sort of profundity to it, right? That would sort of tell you these deep things about life. Uh, And so it became quite natural to sort of shift across from literature towards philosophy and kind of towards what your average person on the the street thinks that philosophy is. And so um, I was reading Camus and Sartre and all of these sort of... uh, deep but very literary philosophers um and then i decided to merge those two together and i decided to do philosophy in french at university which i did uh, at oxford and um two things happened there one was that um quite apart from arriving and getting uh, a thorough education in French philosophy, which is what I expected by doing philosophy in French, it was two very separate things. So the French offering was sort of far more linguistic, and there was also a core first-year module uh, on medieval French literature, which 
was not what I was expecting. And on the other side, on the philosophy side, it was lots of like logic, basically. There was lots of logic in first year. And so I thought, wait a minute, not only are these two elements not talking to each other as much as I thought they would, um, independently, they look different from what I thought they would look like. Right, so the French offering was different to what I expected, and the philosophy offering was very different to what I expected. So that was one thing that happened. But the other thing that happened was because I was at St. Catherine's College, at that time, um, the the philosophy tutor uh, in St. Catherine's College uh, was a man called Tim Bay, who worked in philosophy of mind. Um, and because of the college system, you sort of go and you... You can pick basically whatever modules you want and what dictates um, uh, what lectures you go to is dictated by what modules you choose. So you can choose modules that um, your college tutor isn't a specialist in. But then what that means is, yes, you'll go to all of the central lectures. Uh, but then when it comes to doing the, the tutorials, one-on-one, one-on-two tutorials, these, these small tutorials, you get shipped off to other colleges for these tutorials so that you get um, an offering from somebody who who is a specialist. And so it seems to me both strategic, um, strategically sensible to specialize in philosophy of mind so that Tim could do my, uh, my tutorials, right? And I wouldn't have to walk so far. Uh, but also I just, I just really, I just really got into to philosophy of mind through through that proximity, but in a nearby possible world, right, I could have been excited by something else. Um, and so, yeah, that's how I got into it. Uh, that's how I got into philosophy of mind. Um, and then, um, kind of through Tim's influence, I got into empirically sensitive philosophy of mind, right? So I started to think, well, if we should, if we want to answer questions about the mind, maybe we should do some psychology, maybe we should do some mm -hmm. neuroscience. Um, and so that was, that was when I got into, um, psychology and neuroscience. And I actually came, came here to do, to do the Codmaster. Um, funnily enough on Tim Bain's recommendation, because Tim had been a postdoc here. Um, and also it got me, it, it allowed me to use my French as well. And anyway, so that was, that was all great. But then I started doing, uh, cognitive science and then I realized wait a minute they don't have all the answers I have right so then I went back to philosophy so in a way I kind of it was a pendulum from kind of philosophy of mind to cognitive science and then to philosophy of cognitive science mm. and the area of cognitive science where I felt I got the most purchase funnily enough was in was in neuropsychology mm. right so it seemed like whenever you're looking at sort of healthy cognition um the brain or, 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 or whatever it is you're doing, reaction times, EEG, whatever it is, it doesn't come with a, an interpretation manual, right? So you always have to overlay your own interpretative resources. Whereas, and I found that slightly frustrating as, as somebody who's ex quite explanatorily demanding. And whereas neuropsychology seemed to um, at least show you things that you couldn't question, right? So if if it, it seemed to me like you got purchase, you get purchase on a machine if you know how it breaks, right? 
And so I found it suddenly I was, I was getting these little aha moments when completely independently of any interpretative resources, you go, right, this person has brain damage and therefore, and this kind of brain damage, and therefore they have optic ataxia. Of course, then you've got the box and arrow diagrams and all of that is hugely questionable, but the whole, but, but that initial observation that, wow, okay, if you damage people's brains in relatively well understood ways, you get relatively well understood outcomes. That felt exciting to me. And so that's how I went from cognitive sides into, into broken brains, I guess. Hmm. And, um, so you started off as many people do, I guess reading Camus and like thinking about these deep questions, these existential questions. Do you think you lost track of that somewhere down the line or did you separate it from, uh, from, you know, your work or did you simply just grow out of it? Well, I definitely didn't grow out of it, but I also think that I did lose track of it for, for decades actually. Uh, and I'm starting to come back to it. Mm. Um, it's almost like I needed to curb my enthusiasm for all of that stuff in order to mature intellectually. And now what's happening is that all of that stuff that used to matter to me has always mattered to me. And I'm kind of coming back to it through the lens of philosophy of psychiatry, but also through the lens of thinking about um, broader questions about psychiatry and justice and um, all those sorts of things. And, and a lot of that is influenced by my institutional surroundings now at Exeter, right? Because I'm surrounded by anthropologists and sociologists. And when they interact with, with philosophers, I mean, they, they often refer to people as philosophers who I don't think of as philosophers. So they'll talk to me about Michel Foucault. And I'm like, oh, he's a sort of social theorist or critical theorist or something. And they're like, no, 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 he's the philosopher. I'm like, oh, right. Okay. So, you know, all of these kind of deep questions about um, the individual's place in society and the oppressive power structures that they are subject to, that's stuff that I'm kind of starting to think about again. Um, but yeah, I definitely lost sight of all of that exciting stuff. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing because I think that there's a heady cocktail of that stuff mattering and it really does matter, but how it matters to you when you're an adolescent can derail you, right, from, from a certain rigor. So it's almost like retrospectively i mean it wasn't strategic or deliberate right but retrospectively i like the fact that i got into logic and then i got a firm grounding in like the driest analytic philosophy of mind and epistemology and the kind of stuff that you know would bore some people to tears <laughs> but i'm glad i have that firm grounding and that i was allowed that, that i sort of went through that process and have now returned to the to quote unquote the stuff that matters yeah yeah but yeah that's a really great question so as a philosopher of cognitive science and of psychiatry 
You've been active in an emerging influential approach within the cognitive sciences called predictive processing uh, and have been applying it to questions pertaining to mental health, as you mentioned. So before diving into the topic of predictive processing, um, could you maybe tell us what the traditional view of how uh, cognition functions uh, is and uh, what predictive processing is and how it differs from this traditional view and also where, how it originated and what motivates it, essentially. Yeah. So the traditional view is, is, so, is so broad that it encompasses a huge wealth of positions that conflict with that conflict with one another uh and and so on so it's in the so what you what predictive processing stands in opposition to is a, is a is a vast family of views so vast and so inchoate that even to call them a family of views is yeah. is in but so i think a, a good way to start is with something totally intuitive right if i hit the light switch right the lights go on and the light becomes the, the the room becomes lighter and you see that it's light if i turn it off it goes dark and you see that the um room becomes dark so that very intuitive observation right that we all um witness and is just a profound part of the fabric of our lives um engenders an assumption that's perfectly understandable and that all of the standard views share which is that fundamentally what perception is about and what experience is about is about responding to things that happen in the world mm. so if something happens in the world i respond to it if i respond to it in some way accurately or appropriately accurately in the case of perception appropriately in the case of emotion Right, then I will successfully be able to navigate my world. Right? So far, so good. Right? But what that then does is that that makes it feel like, and, and that drives an assumption behind all of these different, very, very different frameworks that um, the stuff that we care about, the mind stuff, whether that be conscious experience, conscious perceptual experience, conscious emotional experience, whatever, right, is um, somehow uh, a function of what happens in the world, and not just that, but um, post-dates it temporally. However quickly, right, um, there's this idea, let, let's stick with vision for the, for the case, for, for simplicity. Um, all of these different views think that your perceptual experience at T1 mm. is is built out of some sensory event, some impact on your retina from T minus one, however small that temporal increment is. Okay. Predictive processing says, hold on a minute. That's not quite right, okay? In fact, your perceptual experience at T1, right, is determined by something in the upper parts of your brain at T minus one, right? And 
the meeting of mind and brain, the meeting of organism and brain, sorry, I should say, right? Bang, the impact of your sensory surfaces upon the world, right, is anticipatory. So when your when an organism's sensory surfaces encounter the world, the world is already greeted by anticipation, right? And so that very intuitive example of us switching on the lights, switching off the lights, things happening in the world and us reacting to them, the story that predictive processing tells, right, it's not a, as, as an implausible enough story to say that none of that matters, right, but that the reaction is indirect. So what happens is that everything happens, all conscious, all cognition, I was going to say all consciousness, but all cognition, right, consciousness too, right, happens in context. So for any time slice, there's always the, the thing that comes before. So before you hit that switch, right, there was already all of this expectation. And when the switch gets turned off, it's not that you then construct your experience of a dark room out of the darkness in the world. Mm. It's that your predictive hypothesis goes, my predictive hypothesis is no longer accurate. Right. And the contribution of the world is to correct your predictions. Right. But in a sense, you're always ahead of actuality. So the way that I think about this is in terms of two things. Ambiguity and efficiency. Right. So ambiguity is what the brain has to do. It has to make sense of, a, of an incredibly ambiguous world. Uh, but it has to do so efficiently as well. And the ambiguity speaks to um, the kind of Bayesian strategy and the efficiency speaks to the predictive processing, the prediction error minimization implementation of that uh, that Bayesian strategy. Um, and should I in the Bayesian? Yes, great. I was hoping you would say it. Yes. So... So if you think about, so when I say that the world is ambiguous, what does that mean? And I don't just mean, what does that mean causally? I mean, what does that mean conceptually? Well, it means that for any given bit of evidence, for any given bit of input, there is more than one hypothesis that would be adequate given that input. All I need is for it to be more than one. It could be two, it could be three, it could be an indeterminate amount of, uh, of, of it could be an indeterminately large hypothesis space. Mm. So in the case of the light switch, right, you would have, presumably maybe the light is a different shade than you would expect, yes. or it doesn't turn on, or... Exactly, or, or for example, I could have different hypotheses about what caused the light to turn on or off. Mm. Um, but yes, exactly. So I'll, I'll give a concrete example, which is a stock example that I like to use. So imagine you are, uh, you're in your bedroom. Uh, I'm thinking in the, the, in the sort of British context where you, you might be sort of in your bedroom upstairs and, and downstairs is, is, this, is the sort of living space, the kitchen. So you've just gone upstairs to your bedroom. It's, it's, it's nighttime. 
you're home alone um, and you hear a downstairs window squeak and you think, oh, um, now suppose that two, for, for ease, suppose that two hypotheses present themselves. One is, that's a burglar clanking through my window and I should be really scared. The other one is, oh, that's just the window. Sorry, that's just the wind blowing the window. Okay. Now, either, both of those have adequate fit, which is to say that if they were to be true, they would generate that sound. Okay. So why would you skew one things in favour of one hypothesis or the other? You need something to tip the balance. And that is what is called... Uh, in Bayesian terms, prior probability. But it's a very simple idea. It's just that how probable is a particular hypothesis as a background probability, independently of the evidence, hence prior probability. Mm. Right. So before I hear the squeak, completely independently of the squeak, the squeak is irrelevant. Right. What is the probability of, given the circumstances, the wind blowing my window or a burglar climbing in through my window? And if I know that the meteorological conditions are such that it's a windy night and I live in a really low crime rate area, right, then that gives a high prior probability to the wind hypothesis. Alternatively, if I know that it's a very, very quiet night and I live in a high crime rate area, then that might give the burglar hypothesis a high prior probability. Um, but I think just to build on this and ensuring that we sort of follow the story so far, you would, at least in the predictive processing framework, perception is sort of ahead of the sensory picture that is being presented by the world. And I think this is a very unintuitive idea at first when yes. people sort of think about their first person experience. They're like, oh, but we are seeing the world at a high fidelity rate. So maybe could you just talk about some concrete examples, as you said, in vision, uh, that would sort of drive this point home that actually our perception is sort of anticipatory and is sort of ahead of the, right. the picture that the world is presenting us. Right, yeah. So a, a good example of this is, um, I mean, there are all sorts of effects, right, So that, that, that demonstrate this the contribution that our brains make to what we're being presented, right? So one example of this is the hollow mask illusion, right? So if you take a mask and it is spinning round and you see the back, the hollow mask, the back of the hollow back of the mask, your brain corrects that to see that as a, mm. as a normal face. Right. Now, um, what's going on there is that the hypothesis uh, hollow face is the one that has the best fit. I mean, it's literally what you're being presented with, right? But your brain goes, no, no, that I don't see hollow faces. On the other hand, there's a neighboring hypothesis that has got very nice high prior probability, which is a normal sticky outy face. And so I'm going to correct that. So that's, that's one dimension. I mean, that's not particularly, the temporal dynamics of that aren't quite brought out. So, so here's perhaps a better example. There's this phenomenon of sine wave speech, right? So where you'll have like a garbled um, um, speech sound um, 
and you'll listen to it and it'll just sound like this inchoate, garbled, um, fuzzy sound. And then if somebody tells you what it says, you listen to it again and you hear it clear as a bell. Mm. So that's, a, that's another example. Another example is the McGurk effect. So if you've got somebody saying bar, 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 and you keep playing the sound of bar, 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 but then you change the visuals to make it look like the person is saying var, mm. right? you will hear var as long as you're looking at the lips. Now, what's happening there again is this Bayesian predictive processing story where the hypothesis with the best fit, because it's what you're literally hearing is bar, but your brain goes, hold on a minute. Um... I know that human beings can't produce the sound bar when they are doing var with their lips and so you hear it as bar. Mm. Um, so that's, that's not, but there are all sorts of other effects to do with anticipation. So I'm sure the listeners can check these yes, out exactly. uh, as you have named these yeah. effects. But I think an important question here becomes is the source of the priors that inform these hypotheses because excellent you you sort of talked with respect to the McGurk effect for instance that our brain sort of knows that this high prior probability that lips moving one is like a strong evidence for the auditory signal wow but where are these priors coming from are they coming from experience are they coming from evolution a bit of both is the is the is the answer uh so I mean, this is a this is a huge question, and I think it needs to be engaged in a lot more. Where the priors come from? So, um, take the hollow mask illusion, for example. Um, is it just a statistical effect? Is it just that I, I'm I'm so statistically familiar with? sticky outy faces relative to hollow faces or does the hollow mask illusion get massively bolstered by the innate importance of face as a stimulus now i think that what happens is that there's a risk of and this is actually part of the nativism debate completely independently of predictive processing um we need to be careful about talking about innate priors. So what's the, the nativism debate? Oh, yes. Well, so the nativism debate is the nature versus nurture debate, right? So uh, how much of our, and in the cognitive sciences, of course, that's to do with cognition. So how much of our cognition is innate? How much of it is learned? Um, and of course, that has, that plays out concretely in terms of how, Invariant certain things are right? across cultures, upbringings, etc. Um, so something that is that is innate is something that you will find cross culturally across Homo sapiens. Um, so, but we need to be careful because when we say things like "Oh, are these priors innate?" we need to distinguish between these priors are learned. 
these priors have a propensity to be learned more easily than they otherwise would on purely statistical grounds versus a third thing that kind of doesn't really make sense, right? The priors are just there when you're born. Mm. Or arguably that is a difficult, difficult mm. thing to, um, to make sense of. We can maybe, maybe later when we start talking about the further developments mm. within predictive processing, we can talk about how you can sort of make sense of that notion. Right. Uh, but through through notions of 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 literally embodied predictive processing notions, but um, but yeah, I mean, so one place where this where this this plays out, and I think it's it's very interesting because I think in the micro history of the development of predictive processing, which we may end up talking about later, but. Um, Part of the air that we breathed in Edinburgh, academically speaking, because um, in Edinburgh you're in the, the the PPLS, philosophies in the PPLS, philosophy, psychology, and language sciences. So around late the late um, around two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, all the way through to the early to mid tens, um, you. You had a very active uh, language evolution and cognition group within within our building, within the same building as us when we were doing philosophy. So, and what was interesting about that, and what relates this to the nativism debate, is that they were very technologically savvy. They were very into their machine learning. And they were anti-Chomskyan, <laughs> virulently anti-Chomsky, right? But they weren't predictive. Pro they weren't into predictive processing yet. But what they would say is they would say things. I would go to these sorts of um, interdisciplinary talks where I would see people like, um, like Professor Simon Kirby, for example, mm -hmm. um, saying things like, "Well, you know, Chomsky's got it all wrong. <laughs> right. um, it's not that." Um, you know, if you think about, for example, the poverty of the stimulus, right? That kids learn language way faster than you would expect them to. How does that work? Well, language must be innate. Well, you're just not thinking in a sufficiently Bayesian way. You're not thinking uh, in a Bayesian enough way. And also, you're not thinking in a sufficiently environmentally embedded way, right? So instead of thinking... What is the human brain such that it is smart enough to learn language? You need to think about that as a two-way thing, right? What properties must language have in order to make itself learnable mm. uh, by the by the by the brain? So anyway, I'm, I'm just that, that's just by way of saying that that was sort of because um, you mentioned you asked where did the priors come from? Are they are they innate or are they learned? And that just made me think of this perhaps underappreciated academic context in Edinburgh um, that, that, that there was an anti-Chomskyan vein that was kind of complexifying, problematizing this, the very notion of language being innate. No, at most, what you're going to have is you're going to have all of these priors um, that are particularly amenable to being laid down. So yeah, so you you said 
just a bit before that uh, that we could go into you know the further developments and, and in fact what you've been doing up until now is talking about the way bare bones and vanilla as we could call it for data yes. processing so what are these further developments and yes and various some of you it's going to mint mint chop chip and whatever great well so so the vanilla predictive processing is just about the 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 basic combination of the Bayesian strategy, which of course you can be a Bayesian and not think that the mind is anticipatory, as as um, as you rightly pointed out, and um, but so it's it's the combination of the Bayesian strategy and the prediction error minimization um, uh, implementation of that strategy. So. The way in which you get beyond that is to reflect on a number of things. One is that, okay, the brain is trying to settle on these hypotheses based on how well they predict what's going on, but uh, organisms in general, and especially human beings in particular, they move in different contexts. And different contexts it's not just that the world is noisy, it's just that in, it's in, it's that in different contexts, the world is, is differing in its amount of noisiness, in its amount of ambiguity. So what you need to, to, for predictive success, uh, for a real embodied organism that finds itself in different contexts, right. and very simply, right, um, you know, twilight as opposed to midday, right? That's a different informational context, but also different levels of threat, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, different levels of arousal, different levels of fatigue. Anyway, so to to toggle, to, for, to achieve predictive success, you don't just need to have good predictions, but you need to have a good estimation of how much you should trust your predictions. So that's one of the first steps towards complexifying the picture, which is usually thought of. There would be two ways of doing that, right? One would be that you would just add predictions about predictions as part of your architecture. But there's a much simpler way, which is what people tend to go for. And it's also something that doesn't incur an infinite regress, right? Because of course, if you've got predictions of predictions, then you need predictions of the predictions of the predictions. But so what, what tends to be done is that that, that estimation of the, uh, the variability, um, the, 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 the extent to which you should trust your predictions is modulated by precision, right? So you just have your, your bog standard straightforward predictions, and then depending on the, on the quality of the informational context that you're in, they, in a high informational context, when lighting is good, in the case of vision, it'll have high precision. Right? If lighting is bad, you would lower the precision. Right? Also, you've got different levels of precision for different modalities. So remember with the McGurk effect, how what I see in the lips of the speaker overrides what I hear. That's because there is more precision in vision than there is in audition. So 
is precision just another way of saying how much you weigh the evidence that is coming in from the world to the mind? Well, so in, so this is a, this is very interesting, and this speaks to the instrumentalism of the of the framework. Ultimately, it doesn't. Oh, meaning? Sorry. So, so when I say the instrumentalism of the framework, what I mean is that it's a way of thinking about neurons. Is this what's really going on in the brain? Well, no, right? There are there, there are just neurons doing their thing in the brain, right? So it's so. But so to answer your question. If you have more precision, it means that you open yourself up to more prediction error. Now, is that because when you increase the precision on the hypothesis, you, you're being more demanding of the world? Right. Uh, logically speaking, right. Um, then I'm more, then you're, and you're more likely to be wrong, and therefore you're going to get more predictions. If I say, "Hey, I bet, I bet that car that, that I can hear coming around the corner is blue," right? That opens me up to less error than if I say, "Hey, I bet it's dark blue," or "I bet it's this particular shade." Mm. The more precise you are, logically, you're going to incur more, um, mm. more error. But another way of thinking about it, which is actually computationally um, equivalent, right, is that you can think of precision as just turning up the gain on prediction error, right? So the hypothesis stays the same, but what you do is however, whatever error is generated is just felt more strongly. So the way most people think of precision is in terms of turning up the gain on prediction error. Right which is a slightly odd way of talking because you might think that precision is something that attaches to the hypothesis, right. not to the evidence. But people use them interchangeably because they basically say, ultimately, all I want to know is as a result of this modulatory mechanism, right. which is thought to be modulated by dopamine, but we can talk anyway, we can talk about that later. Ultimately, you just end up with more prediction error. Mm -hmm. And so what basically happens is what this additional modulatory mechanism does is it means that you now have two, two areas of potential accuracy and inaccuracy, two areas of success and failure, right? My predictions can just be wrong or right. But alternatively, independently of whether my predictions are wrong or right, I might have a second order success or failure where the extent to which I should be trusting my predictions is uh, is inaccurate, right? And so I might, I might take myself to be in a higher informational context than I actually am, right? Uh, and as a result trust uh prediction error like put too much weight on prediction error um you kind of get that in context where you're walking down an, uh, a, a half-lit alleyway and you freaked yourself out a little bit and so you for a split second see some kind of 
ambiguous shape in the corner and you see it as like a lurking threat. Like a bad man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're about to get mugged and then, oh no, that's just a bin. Okay. I think. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so there are two levels of potential inaccuracy, that first and second. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one way of going beyond the vanilla. In a way, that's the first step. But wait a sec. So uh, to be clear, like, so there's these two ways of thinking about the modularity, um, you know, thing for precision. Uh, one of them is to view it as like part of the hypothesis seems more intuitive. Yes. Uh, and the other one is just the... Uh, turning up the gain on prediction error. Yeah. The predictions that these two versions make, not, not the predictions that we attribute to the mind, but right. the theoretical scientific predictions, are they basically the same for these two view ways of uh, viewing uh, precision uh, or are they different in some ways? So I think there should be a way of teasing them apart, but that has not, as far as I know, they have been seen to be empirically uh equivalent in that whichever one of those two you go for in a in any given context you'll end up with more prediction error um does that make sense yeah yeah because it seems like you would want to capture the example you you gave with the you know predicting on the one hand that you the car will be blue and on the other hand it'll be a certain shade of blue and it seems like just turning up the game prediction error doesn't really capture that difference no, at all. No, it doesn't, doesn't. It doesn't. But I think that, again, this speaks to the way in which this is just an overlay onto the, the neurological reality. Because mm. I think what they would say is they say, well, actually, as a theoretical entity, prediction error is just a, is just a quantity that is a function of the relationship between the hypothesis and the and and the evidence, um, so to tease apart these two things, you'd have to add some more stuff, exactly. stuff to this theory. Exactly, um, exactly. And you may also end up committing yourself to a level of realism that is unjustified as well. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, as, as compared. Yes. As, as opposed to instrumentalism. Exactly. 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 Yeah. exactly. So yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. And then just moving on to some of the other developments that you were, uh, we were discussing about. You also mentioned that you feel the prediction error in some way, all the way up to the hypothesis space. So is this where the, another development is sort of going towards in terms of emotions? Ah, yes. Okay, good. Um, yes, I think that before we get to emotions we need to talk about action um, because I think there are two there are two successive waves of thinking about emotions in processing terms and one of them does not make use of action and the other one does so so let me say a little bit about action so one way of thinking about the predictive processing framework is in terms of this dictum right so you might think that what it actually is, it's not really a framework. It's a it's a full blown theory, right? That says all the brain ever does is minimize prediction error. Right? The brain's overarching imperative is to minimize prediction error. Um, and and that sort of makes sense when you're talking about perception. 
But then how does action fit in? Right? How do motor commands fit in? Right? And here is where a really clever move happens. So there's a really nice paper by Adams, Ship, and Friston called Predictions Not Commands. Right? And they make this point, which is basically a point that, you know, you find it in, in Aquinas, you find it in Anscombe, you find it in all of these classic texts that there's a difference in direction of fit, right? So one way of making my hypotheses fit the world, right, is to make my hypotheses respond to the world. And that's what you might call perceptual inference. And that is what you get in vanilla PP, vanilla predictive process. But there's also another way of making your hypotheses fit the world. And that is to change the world to fit your hypothesis. Right. Again, I mean, John Searle has these, the mind to world direction of fit, the world to mind. It's basically the same idea, right? And so what becomes the functional equivalent of a motor command is a, a bodily prediction. So say I want to raise my arm. I generate a bodily prediction about my arm going up and then fulfill that prediction. Now, um, of course, my predictions about what is going to happen are going to fail if it's for things that I don't have control over. Mm -hmm. Right. But you get nice, you get nice stories about how, for example, um, skilled artifact use becomes incorporated in predictive processing like the blind person using their cane right their attention the bounds that their sensory boundaries become the tip of the cane onto the floor rather than their finger mm. onto the cane right because of that uh that skilled active inference sorry so that that so you've got perceptual inference where my hypotheses are updated based on what's happening in the world. And there's active inference where the world updates to my hypotheses. But interestingly, the scope of active inference is not necessarily constrained. It's just constrained by control. It's not necessarily bodily, right? Which is interesting. Uh, so that's one other dimension. And you mentioned emotion. So here's where emotion comes in. And here's where it's why it was important to do that first. Because the question is, is emotion on the perceptual inference side of things or is it on the active inference side of things um so the first wave of thinking about emotion there's a lovely paper by Anil Seth from going way back to maybe 2013 or something um where the basic idea is as follows just as perceptual experience is the hypothesis is 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 a function of the hypothesis that my nervous system generates in order to make sense and then subsequently predict extra receptive signals, signals from the outside world hitting my sensory surfaces. Emotional experience is exactly the same thing, but for visceral change, right? For bodily change. So what an emotional experience then becomes is um, perception of bodily change, right? Which, of course, is William James. It's a Jamesian story. Um, now, 
it's not that that's wrong. It's that it's somewhat limited, right? It's limited for two reasons, right? The perceptual hypotheses that I generate are evaluatively neutral. Right? They don't have positive or negative valence, at least built into them. And what do you mean by valence? Wait. Oh, uh, positive. So like, they're neither they're neither felt nor good or bad as good or bad, right? The my my visual experience of that coffee cup on the table, right, could be that I'm really thirsty and I really want coffee, but that's that's a downstream thing, right? The hypothesis itself is neutral, is informational, mm. right? It's neither positive nor, nor nor negative. It's neither pain nor pleasure. It's neither good nor bad. Emotions are very different. Emotions have valence packed into them. So one problem with that initial story about emotion is that it lacks valence. And of course, the clue is in the name, right? Emotion, right? Emotion moves as well. Those two things are kind of related. So more recent developments that are perhaps too technical for me to talk about now, but I could try if you want. Um, try to develop the, a predictive processing account of emotion in a way that incorporates those two elements. Right. The positivity and negativity of certain emotions, affective valence, right? and also explain why it is that emotions move us um, and sort of incorporate a kind of... So the question, the initial question, is emotion on the side of perceptual inference or active inference? Both. So now that you've sort of given us a broad overview of what predictive processing is and what the different developments have, have been, let's turn to one of its most exciting ex applications, understanding and treating mental health issues. Yes. So much of your work examines various ways of explaining so-called pathological phenomenon with the help of predictive processing. So before delving into this further, it's important to just remark for our listeners that this is part of a broader enterprise of asking philosophical questions about psychiatry. What is the nature and origin of seemingly irrational cognition? How can we better study the causes and accommodation of mental disorders and so on? So the question then is, why does psychiatry need philosophy and sociology? I mean, people might wonder that uh, we might not need to ask these philosophical questions when there are already so many different professionals like the psychiatrists and clinical therapists who are already working on this. So would you Great. have some comments on that? Yeah. So, so I think the contributions of philosophy... Uh, and at this point, I should probably plug my my textbook. <laughs> so I, I published a textbook at the start of of this year, uh, the Routledge Contemporary Introduction to Philosophy of Psychiatry. And it was a it was a difficult thing. It was a very difficult thing to write. It took four years, and it's a, it was a difficult thing to come back from. So for a really long time, while I was working on it, and immediately afterwards, people would be like, "Hey, what are you working on?" And I'd be like, "Uh." <laughs> the entire breadth of philosophy of psychiatry from what is effectively critical sociological approaches all the way to like philosophy of neuroscience and everything in between. So this is all by way of saying the philosoph the 
the, the potential philosophical contributions to psychiatry are vast and varied. And so one thing that somebody with philosophical... A better way of framing the issue is what does philosophical training bring to mental health research and mental health practice? Yeah. So philosophical training brings at one level clarity of thought, right? Because there is a hell of a lot of loose thinking in um, all kinds of research, right? But psychiatric research um, in particular. So kind of this, this sort of conceptual clarity. I mean, this is, this reminds me of a little funny thing. When I was working in the voice hearing project, hearing the voice in Durham, I was the, one of the philosophers uh, in this big interdisciplinary team. And people referred to me as the conceptual hygienist <laughs> because I'd sort of like, I'd like drop in and I'd say, oh no, well, you're, you've, you're, you've used this word, but you're equivocating or you've not been sufficiently clear about what you mean or you've, you've, uh, you've taken this to have consequences that it doesn't actually have because here are some other hypotheses that you haven't considered and so on and so forth. Uh, so there's this role of like conceptual hygienist. I'm going to own that. <laughs> uh, there's the role of conceptual hygienist. So that's one role, right? The conceptual clarity that philosophy brings, but also the fact that as a philosopher, you aren't a technological specialist. You're not a specialist in any particular um, institutionally sanctioned technology. And so what you what that opens up is this interesting freedom to see the big picture. Now, the big picture allows for two things. It allows for integrative approaches, right? So quite aside from being a conceptual hygienist, you can then also be the glue that binds together different things, right? So take voice hearing, for example. We'll have people doing symptom capture fMRI studies. We'll have people doing EEG studies. We'll have people doing behavioral studies, lexical priming studies, eye tracking studies, right? Psychiat psychiatric epidemiological studies. I could go on, just right. And then somebody has to come in and tie it all together because you're all talking about the same chunk of reality, right? At the risk of sounding grandiose, for us, for most of us, right? It's philosophers who, who can do that, right? Because they are conversant or they can become conversant in all of these things. Uh, in a sense, it isn't grandiose because it's a question of the time that you yes, yes, exactly, 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 exactly. I don't even need to hang up my lab coat. Yeah, and that's how much time I have. Um, dust off your armchair sometimes. Exactly, just dust off the armchair sometimes. Dust off the armchair sometimes. So there's that. So it allows that integrative. So so the 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 freedom and the division of labor. The big picture thinking gives you allows you to integrate different disciplines and this is something that that I've got into more recently partly because of my proximity to anthropology and sociology but also to do with what you asked Jay about me returning to my slightly adolescent predilections um it gives you a critical perspective mm. so it makes you go right I'm standing back from all of these institutional things and wow some of these 
some of these institutional structures are systematically biasing, right, or, or toxic or harmful or unjust. Um, so think about, for example, um, how the drive for evidence-based medicine gave rise to randomized control trials and how randomized control trials were held as the gold standard and how to get a really good randomized control trial, you need a placebo condition, right? There you're already biasing in favor of pharmacological interventions because goodness me, it is so much easier to develop a placebo, a controlled placebo condition with a, a pill than it is for some other kind of therapy. Then that also introduces all sorts of vested interests on the part of big pharma. Then you end up lowering thresholds for certain disease inclusion criteria and so on and so forth. Right. So that's another thing that philosophy can do. Especially um, for psychiatry. I mean, especially for psychiatry. Philosophy, you, you do require philosophy in every aspect of life, but it just given from the implications that you seem to speak of, it does seem that it has these very real world consequences yeah. from yeah. people yeah. who might be diagnosed yeah. with having a particular disorder. Exactly. And, but what's interesting is that as a philosopher, you can see that you don't have to see that as, um, as, as a deliberate evil move, right? It's sometimes just like dumb institutional lock-in, right? You know, the, the initial... The initial focus on on evidence based medicine was, you know, the the initial motivations were noble, and then you have a cascading effect that leads to things that that are problematic. But yeah, so that's so. I think philosophy does all of those things: conceptual clarity at the micro level, tying together different disciplines casting a critical lens um also just re here's something that's subtly different from the critical lens right um re re-examining that the, the taken for granted so that which is taken for granted just just re-examining it thinking okay mm. um but yeah so yeah Philosophy, I think, can contribute a lot. Mm. So you, in, in the introduction, you talked about how you got from philosophy to empirically informed philosophy of mind, and then from empirically informed philosophy of mind to cognitive science and to cognitive neuroscience. Mm. That is, using uh, data from you know brain lesions and yeah. pathologies to study the brain. But philosophy of psychiatry is something different that still. So how did you get from the cognitive neuroscience and philosophy of cognitive science aspect things yeah. side of things to philosophy of psychiatry that is a really great question and the story is more causal than justificatory so uh basically i started looking i got really into brain injury and different manifestations of brain injury and one that is particularly interesting and i mean interesting there's a there's a disciplinary boundary that is interesting between neuropsychology and neuropsychiatry, right? So neuropsychology is when you've got brain injury and as a result, you've got interesting deficits. So you can talk about whether that is um, visual agnosia, 
So visual agnosia is the, an, an inability to sort of recognize and categorize objects that you see or, you know, um, uh, optic ataxia, um, where you, when you get a dissociation between the two, right? So one where you can't, um, guide your action based on what you're seeing. So that's neuropsychology. Neuropsychiatry is when you've got brain injury and it generates quote unquote psychiatric phenomena. So somebody will have localized brain injury and then will suddenly have delusions, which are a hallmark of quote unquote madness, psychosis. So a good example of this is the Capgras delusion. So somebody, I'm going to use a, a very concrete example, right? A 20 something year old man has a motorcycle accident, wakes up from a coma, his parents visit him. And he says, those aren't my parents. And this is very perplexing for the clinicians because they've done neuropsychological assessments and he's otherwise fine. <laughs> so he goes back home. But what's weird is that he also, when he gets discharged, he goes back home to live with them. And he just keeps insisting, look, that guy, he's a very nice guy and he looks just like my dad, but he's not my dad. Right. So I started looking at those after looking at neuropsychology generally. And then that got me into thinking about, that's what I meant when I said it's causal rather than justificatory. It just so happened that I was looking at delusions in the context of brain damage. And then I started looking at delusions more generally, because in order to look at delusions, I needed to understand what the concept of delusion was. And of course, Delusions in the context of quote-unquote functional psychiatry as opposed to organic conditions, right, where a brain scan doesn't show you massive brain damage. The amount, the sheer quantity of delusions in that context far outweighs, you know, delusions in the context of brain damage are vanishingly rare compared to delusions in the context of schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, I always feel awkward using all of these categories, but anyway, but he, so that was, that was how I got into, into psychiatry. Right. So since you were talking about delusions right now, how would you understand delusions from a predictive processing framework? Right. So that is very interesting because I don't like thinking about delusions in terms of predictive processing. Um, but other people do. So maybe what I could, maybe what, maybe what is more helpful is to tell you about the standard approach that the field, the burgeoning field of, of what's called computational psychiatry, a subset of which leans heavily on predictive processing. The standard predictive processing accounts of psychosis, would that be helpful? And then... Mm -hmm. And then we can talk about delusions and then we can maybe talk about why I don't like applying predictive processing to delusions. Although I do like applying predictive processing to hallucination. Mm. Okay. So does that, would that, yep. yeah, does that make sense? Our original yeah. plan was to go through these things, hallucinations, delusions, <laughs> trauma, and then just ask the question. Yes. Uh, how is it standardly studied? Um, uh, how how do you approach it? Uh, what can predictive processing do for it? So I guess we can do that. So great. Uh, if you like, we can start with hallucinations. Great. Good. Yeah. So basically, 
remember what we said about precision. Okay. So precision is really important for the, for the application of predictive processing to psychosis. So there were all of these observations, all of the, basically you had empirical, you had empirical methods, uh, experimental psychology effectively that was being used on clinical populations, people with diagnoses of schizophrenia. Uh, and it was hoped that that would help us understand schizophrenia. It might provide diagnostic biomarkers for schizophrenia, et cetera, et cetera. And so what you had is you had, it's a very important book, very slim book, uh, by Chris Frith, um, entitled The Neuropsychology of Schizophrenia uh, from 1992. And in it, he presents uh, what you might call a self-monitoring theory of schizophrenia. So he thought, well, you've got all of these different um, symptoms of schizophrenia, but basically the positive symptoms, the psychotic symptoms, the things that disconnect somebody from reality are to do with this phenomenon of self-monitoring. Right. So when we do stuff in the world, right? We, our nervous systems basically keep track of when what's going on in the world is produced by us and when it's produced by the world. Um, when this goes wrong, right? You will end up doing something and thinking that it's coming from the outside world. So one of the symptoms of, of, uh, of schizophrenia is delusions of control so you'll get up in the morning you'll brush your hair and you'll go i didn't brush my hair somebody else brushed my hair. somebody is controlling my actions that's kind of ground level understanding of self-monitoring but then that gets applied if you think about your inner life right inner speech certain imaginative episodes certain recollective episodes right there's this kind of self-monitoring that we take for granted right we take for granted we take the we take for granted our nervous system's capacity to differentiate stuff that happens that we have done and stuff that happens that the world has done, and that is our uh, gives us a fundamental grip on reality. Now it doesn't take a huge imaginative leap to imagine what it would be like if you lost the differentiation between what I do and what the world does. So you'll have an episode of inner speech, and then you'll think actually that didn't come from me, right? It'll feel loud, it'll feel aggressive, it'll feel uncanny, right? It's a wonderfully evocative idea, this idea of self-monitoring. However, what's not clear is even if you say, right, there are these self-monitoring deficits, there's no story about why it is that people with schizophrenia have these self-monitoring deficits. There are just cool studies like people with schizophrenia can tickle themselves, but you can't, right? You can't tickle yourself because your nervous system is already anticipating the sensory consequences of your actions through this process of self-monitoring. So there are all these cool observational studies. Now, in parallel with all of that, you've got biological psychiatry making huge advances in understanding, um, you know, iron gating and uh, ion, ion, not I-R-O-N, um, 
you know, but, but basically how synapses work, right? And neuro and neurobiological advancements. So you've got first generation antipsychotics and second generation antipsychotics and all that. So completely independently of these experimental and largely behavioral um, experiment data to do with clinical populations. In parallel with that, you've got um, you've got neurobiological advancements in understanding antipsychotics, right? So antipsychotics basically block dopamine receptors and reduce um, psychotic symptoms. Um, and how do you link those two together? And that's where predictive processing comes in, right? Because if you think that what dopamine fundamentally does is modulate precision, turn up the gain on prediction error, right? Then what you might then think is that psychosis involves too much dopamine, right? Therefore, too much prediction error. Therefore, computationally, what the psychotic individual the the nature of the error of the psychotic individual, right, is that they take themselves to be in a much higher informational quality environment than they are actually in. So they generate lots of prediction error. The precision is too high. And um, if the central dictum of predictive processing is correct, that the, the brain strives to minimize prediction error, in an attempt to quell all of that prediction error, the psychotic brain, for want of a better term, generates all of these erroneous hypotheses. Right. Um, now, I like the way that that... Now, the, the, the traditional way of doing, of talking about that, so there's a, a really nice paper by... Um, by Paul Fletcher and Chris Frith. So interestingly, Chris Frith, who was a proponent of the self-monitoring theory, very quickly moved across to, to predictive processing, broadly predictive processing approaches. Um, and in that paper, it's called Perceiving is Believing. Um, well, he starts there and then colon something else. Um, uh, they say, well, this predictive processing story about there being too much prediction error, that gives us a nice account of uh, perception. But also because predictive processing is hierarchically arranged, at the top of the hierarchy, right, it gives us a nice story about delusion, about belief. Um, now... I really like predictive processing for hallucination. In particular, quite aside from the details, I like the way it, that it recasts the central explanatory question. So when I started working on hallucinations, my first step was to just look at, well, not just hallucination, but voice hearing specifically. I just looked through all of these different accounts. So, and there were so many different accounts from spontaneous activation in auditory cortex, uh, misattributed memories, misattributed inner speech, problems with imagination, and so on. All of these different accounts. And 
they were all trying to answer the same question, which was the question, which is the following question. When somebody hears a voice in the absence of a speaker, they are having the sort of experience that a healthy person normally has when there is a particular environmental stimulus, namely a speech sound. How do we bridge that gap? How do we explain how in the absence of a speech sound, this person's nervous system thinks that there is a speech sound? And so what then becomes the explanatory target becomes how do we explain the illusion of this environmental stimulus? Now you can see where I'm going here because this is like we're us returning to the light switch again, right? About this, this bottom-up way of thinking where they're just arguing over which, how do you give the illusion of this, mm. of this environmental stimulus? Bring predictive processing into the picture, suddenly you turn it on its head and you go, actually, that's no longer our central explanatory hypothesis. We don't need to account for the illusion of an environmental stimulus. We need to ask ourselves, why does this person's brain from the top down generate the hypothesis that somebody is speaking to them? Now, what's interesting about this is this also fits in with some other research I did that had nothing to do with predictive processing. It was a, a paper that I wrote with a clinical psychologist, Vaughan Bell, entitled the, Rep the Representation of Agents in Auditory Verbal Hallucinations. Now, what was interesting about this was we did, we looked at lots of um, instances of voice hearing and we said, hold on a minute, this phenomenon is a phenomenon that is predominantly somebody is predominantly a, an agentive phenomenon that happens to be auditory rather than an auditory phenomenon that happens to be agentive so and and also that plays out in the phenomenon of soundless voices and so on and so forth and also but it also is implicit in all of these um like screening questionnaires how many voices do you hear Right? That doesn't make sense if all we're interested in is an auditory phenomenon. Right? When you say, how many voices do you hear? And the person goes, well, I hear the voice of a 12-year-old boy, a 350-year-old dragon. And uh, you know, those are bound into agents. Right? And so again, that fits nicely with the predictive processing idea. The idea that the explanatory target is, is from the top down, not from the bottom up. Um, so yeah, I, I found it a really fruitful marriage marriage of predictive processing and hallucinations recently. Yeah, it seems yeah quite intuitive, compelling. So how about delusions now? Why why doesn't this apply to delusions? Ah, yes. Uh, the short answer is, is that I think that the predictive processing hierarchy and predictive processing in general is a good story about your... Um, about your experience in all its richness, what it is that you're phenomenologically undergoing now at the moment. Whereas I think that belief is a different thing. And I think that belief is... Wait, for the, for the listeners, can you uh, quickly say what the relationship between belief and delusions are? Why is Horan as a belief? Yes. Well, so traditionally people have thought of um, a delusion as a 
as a bad belief, right? That's bad in a particular way. So, so typically you will say, Hey, this person is delusional when they make a claim, right? That is obviously false, right? And what's more, they wouldn't count as delusional if they were just open to immediate correction, right? If you went, Hey, that's false. And they went, Oh yeah, sorry, you're right. Silly me. And they updated it. Then they wouldn't be delusional, right? So there's a, there's a, there's a double badness of delusion, right? Where it's a belief that is obviously false, right? Um, and it is resistant to counter evidence. There are other people, there are other conditions that are particular, that are questionable. Like for example, people say that delusions are, aren't supported by evidence that gets questioned by accounts of delusions that say, well, well, no, these are just, um, strange beliefs that are based on very strange experiences, right? So that's, that's one way of thinking about it. But yeah, so delusions are just very bad beliefs, beliefs that are bad across many different dimensions, bad in the sense that beliefs ought to be true, beliefs ought to be flexible and evidence responsive. So, uh, delusions, uh, fly in the face of various orts, right? That attempt that's supposed to govern beliefs. Um, uh, it's not that I think that predictive processing is completely irrelevant to making sense of many, many cases of delusions. It's just that I don't think that, uh, I think that beliefs are an abstract and socially distributed thing rather than something that sits at the top of the brain. Um, so with the idea being very broadly that predictive processing approaches to delusion would view these bad beliefs as something the top of the brain and it's just missing the mark completely because, uh, it's, you know, there's something else going on that it just misses. Yes. Where yes, exactly. And there's something successful and exactly it. That's exactly what I said. That's exactly what I think. So, so, so this, although, you know, although, although, um, this Fletcher and Frith paper is, is unbelievably important. I do think that something is missed by saying, well, you've got these sort of lower in the hierarchy. You've got all of these kind of sensory hypotheses and they generate, um, and they generate hallucinations. Higher up the hierarchy, you've got more cognitive um, hypotheses and these generate delusions. Um, what I think is that uh, if you understand, put beliefs to one side, right? We are social creatures and we say certain things to each other. Um, we make certain assertions. There's a certain social epistemic ecology that is suffused with all with a, this incredible array of uh, incentive and disincentive um now what makes something a delusion right is that somebody is profoundly is a profoundly unhelpful component in that network you can think of the delusional an individual as the supremely socially epistemically uncooperative individual, you know, um, all of that is missed by this, by this sort of 
uh, excessively neurocentric approach, I guess. But do you think that is such a thing as a belief-like state, high-order state that does produce, you know, these important errors, mm. but it's just not sufficient to talk about these? Or do you think that these things just don't make, it doesn't even make sense to say that these belief-like things exist and do produce error? So I definitely think that we can talk about there being a gradation between the more sensory side of things and the more cognitive side of things mm. within the brain. I think a helpful way of thinking about that is in terms of temporal scales. So the sensory stuff is resolved at very rapid timescales and the more cognitive stuff is resolved at slower timescales. And that tends to correlate with levels of abstraction versus concreteness mm. and so on. Um, uh, now that how that then maps on to our folk psychological concept of belief I think is a, is a different is a different question mm. I think that what you could say is you can talk about you can talk about a particular organism's overall informational state and so how they take things to stand in the world. Um, but I don't think that that is happily expressed in terms of like sincere assertion, which is the traditional way of thinking of belief, right? Beliefs are whatever is expressed by a sincere assertion. Right? I think it's the an organism's informational state is, uh, is, is much more holistic than that. And, but yeah, that's, um, I mean, I think a lot of the problem with the philosophy of belief is that people are playing fast and loose between these two, yeah. these two notions. <laughs> so they think, well, you know, uh, a belief is something like a, like the endorsement of a particular kind of sentence, um, or a belief is just like that. I take the world to be thus and so as evidenced by my goal directed action, right? So maybe to sort of switch gears and be more concrete, does, and sort of bring the circle back to predictive processing, um, does thinking about these alternative explanations in terms of predictive processing have some downstream implications on refining current practices in therapy or mental health? Yeah. So one of the things, when we move beyond vanilla predictive processing, one of the things that I didn't talk about was this thing, um, this other, this move that, so there's this thing called the free energy principle. So the free energy principle is basically the idea that anything that has thinghood uh, has to be obeying the free energy principle. So, um, so anything that retains its integrity over time is um, minimizing quote unquote free energy. Um, so there's a there's a trivial sense in which in which a rock is obeying the free energy principle. It's retaining its thinghood, right? But it's just with it's just retaining its integrity against the world in a in a in a very passive way, right? It's just strong enough to deal with 
with uh, with with what's going on. Then you've got like single celled organisms, right? That uh, have to be a little bit more proactive, right? And they are uh, minimizing free energy uh, in an active way through homeostasis and anostasis, um, basically up updating their bodily conditions in response to what's going on around them. Mm. Right? Now, of course, a single-celled organism, I mean, a neuron is just one cell, right? So a single-celled organism ain't got no neurons, right? So, it, But it is reacting to its world in an intelligent way, but not at the rapid timescales that uh, neuronal machinery allows. Predictive processing, so so here's, so here's the c connection, right? And this is the, a link made by by Carl Friston, of course, who's who is uh, an absolutely towering figure of predictive processing and active inference and free energy. So the observation is that wait a minute, predictive processing is just how organisms that have neurons obey the free energy principle. It's how they retain their thinghood, how they retain their organismic integrity, how they effectively don't disintegrate and die. Okay. Now, what that does is that it reframes predictive processing in a way that I and many other people have found attractive. Because what it then does is it, it says, unlike in vanilla predictive processing, where um, you talk about the organism, the nervous system using models of its environment... The organism is a model of its environment. It becomes an uh, a model of its environment. So the fact that your hand looks the way that it does, right, is basically, mathematically speaking, predictive processing, but over eons of evolution. Hmm. Whereas the way in which you respond to your visual environment, right, is is that, but a much 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 quicker times. Now, why does that matter for thinking about? Hmm. Uh, psychopathology. Well, it means that, and this is something I'm I'm in the process of developing at the moment. You move away from the idea that uh, the central imperative of predictive processing is prediction error minimization, right? Because ultimately, this there's this there's this little dialectic, right? So in response to that, people said, well, there's this thing called the dark room problem. Why don't you just sit in a dark room? That's a pretty good way of minimizing prediction error, right? And the answer has been, no, well, it's not that you minimize prediction error to cool. It's that you minimize prediction error over time, over the life course. And you go, but the trouble is, is that no organism knows how long they're going to live, mm. right? No, that's an intractable quantity, right? Mm. The, the prediction error minimized over time right so you have this proxy that's that i call basic control right so what every organism strives for is this proxy which is uh which is control and the computational equivalent of of distress and pleasure is achieving control or losing control mm. in this sense now um the reason that that is important for thinking about uh about pathology right is that then you can start to think about pathologies in terms of of losing this control and re-establishing control so for example 
I'm just starting to explore the ways in which if you think about how music works and how music is pleasurable by giving you just the right amount of unexpected, right? Music is pleasurable when you're basically being statistically flattered, right? When they're saying, hey, here's this thing that's challenging, but well done, you've resolved it, right? Mm. Um, if you think about how pleasure in music works and how psychological trauma is distressing, right? You've got nice analogies going on there. So, yeah. I mean, I think the, the implications are potentially huge. Uh, yeah, so before uh, we wrap up fully, would you like to uh, come back to anything you said or that we missed that you think is very important for clarity's sake, let's say? Um, yeah, so this embodied move, this move from the organism making use of using models of its environment to being a model of its environment that that's a move from that there's a further move that i think is particularly important and that interestingly ties in with my completely unrelated or seemingly unrelated more kind of sociological approaches to mental illness and that's this notion of enculturation so if if our if our brains and our nervous systems and our bodies right are just uh, plugging into the statistical structure of our environment, a hugely important part of that environment is 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 cultural and institutional. So, I think that's I think that's very important, and it makes us think about the human organism as 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 deeply embedded in a particular thought space that's actually quite culturally variable. Mm. But I think this makes another general point because this is something some of my friends who are anti-reductionist and I'm anti-reductionist to 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 some extent and who think that that there's too much neurocentrism, they criticize predictive processing and they say, ah, oh, brain schmain, who cares about the brain? Let's look at the world, right? Now, I'm this is this is the beautiful irony of the whole predictive processing thing. That what's basically happened is we've looked at the brain, we've dug into the brain, we've looked at it, and, and our best account of the brain, the brain turns around and looks at us and says, don't look at me, look out there. That's the beautiful irony thing, because that's what the brain is fundamentally doing. All it is doing is plugging into this the deep statistical structure of the world. And so then you're like, oh, wow, you're right. I should be doing sociology. I should be doing anthropology. I should be, you know, because all the brain is doing is just plugging into that stuff. Right? And then really understanding how the statistics of the environment is skewed in so many exactly. ways, which could have exactly. implications on the mind. Oh, indeed. That's a, that's a really beautiful tone on its head from predictive processing. Well, um, this has been Cognitations, a Cognitive Science Podcast. We've been chatting with Sam Wilkinson. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, great. Great fun. On the next episode of Cognitations, we'll chat with Nancy Canvashu about how one can investigate the modularity of the mind using neuroscience. If you have ever wondered about the architecture of the mind, this episode is not to be missed.